Good to have you with us. Well, I hope that your Valentine's Day reality matched your every expectation. There was a young woman who was taking an afternoon nap, and she woke up, and she told her husband, I just dreamed that you gave me a pearl necklace for Valentine's Day. What do you think it means? You'll know tonight, he said. That evening, the man came home with a small package and gave it to his wife. Delighted, she opened it, only to find a book entitled, The Meaning of Dreams. I don't know what your Valentine's Day traditions are, but the fact that you probably have some Valentine's Day traditions actually is the part of life that Jesus is going to speak into today. Take these little candies, for instance. We don't even really like the flavor of these, right? I mean, we give them over and over and over it. At least if they were little Tums tablets, it'd be good, because there'd be some functionality to them. I polled this with the college group this week, just to see if I was on the same page that no one really likes these. And uh, someone commented that they actually like Tums better than these. So that's saying something. But we keep giving them out over and over, year after year, spending hard-earned money. And the question is why. Here's why. Tradition. Balance. That I can tell you in one word. Tradition! 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 of our traditions, we've kept our balance for many, many years. Here in Anatevka, we have traditions for everything. How to sleep, how to eat, how to work, how to wear clothes. For instance, we always keep our heads covered and always wear a little prayer shawl. This shows our constant devotion to God. You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our tradition, Every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Because of our traditions. But here's the question. What if our traditions get skewed over time? What if they're off a little bit? All of a sudden, who we are and what God expects us to do could change. Jesus speaks into our traditions and rituals. We're in a series called Red Words, and the main idea behind it is this, that the the greatest preacher who ever lived still preaches. It's been recorded for us in the Scripture. And the greatest storyteller who ever lived uh, still is telling us stories, and we can still grow and learn from them. In fact, today, the 
the passage that we're going to look at, and if you would open your Bibles to, to Matthew chapter 9, that's where we'll be. What we see is this, that Jesus is telling us a new story. He's coming to usher in a new story, and he wants us to get in on it. He says it's not hidden and it won't be stopped. I've called this morning Breaking and Building with Jesus. And the setting is this. Jesus is just called Matthew and he's a hated tax collector. He's hated because he's a tax collector. And he invites him to follow him. And Matthew said, yes, and left his practice and began to follow Jesus. So Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 10, says this. So right on the heels of him getting called. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? I've called it breaking and building with Jesus because what we're going to see is I want to show you three things that Jesus breaks this morning. The first is this. He breaks bread. And Jesus breaking bread with this particular crowd actually sets up the story. It sets up the conflict that is going on in this passage. Let's read on. Matthew chapter 9 verse 12 says this. But when he heard it, He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So what initiates the conflict is this breaking of bread, this this meal that was going on. Matthew gets called. Who is Matthew going to invite but his friends? Who are his friends? disreputable, notorious sinners, hated outcasts. Now, hospitality in our culture is a lot different than other places, and you can get a sense of this when you go to other cultures. How many of you have been to another culture and you've recognized that a meal is much more than just a meal in, in, in other cultures? Raise your hand if, if, if you've experienced that, okay? So it doesn't even have to be in this region where Jesus actually walked the earth. I get a sense of it when I, when I go other places, and we live in kind of a fast food nation, and a lot of times eating is utilitarian, right? We slam down a meal to go on to the next thing to kind of keep us powered, and, and we're, I think, slowly as a culture losing the art of hospitality that way. But a meal was a, was a really, really big deal. To eat a meal was a sign of acceptance. It was filled with procedures and implications, and it, again, it's just hard for some of us to grasp. What was one of the accusations leveled against Jesus but this? He ate with sinners. That was part of his reputation. And so to us, again, that might land on modern ears as, who cares? That's no big deal. But but in this culture, it was a much bigger deal. Why? Well, religious teachers, which they weren't sure exactly what Jesus was, yet in fact Jesus' identity was clouded all through his ministry, but they recognized he was some kind of a rabbi, some kind of a teacher. He was doing things awfully different. Because he's actually going and calling pupils to follow him rather than pupils coming and requesting to follow the rabbi. So they're picking up on this. But religious teachers held the highest position in culture. They wouldn't eat with riffraff because they had a reputation to maintain. They wouldn't eat with sinners because they were guilty by association. But really it was even deeper than that. To understand 
being clean and unclean and the ceremonial washings and all that went on with that, to eat with a sinner would disrupt some things. It was a blatant disregard for tradition to do this. And that equaled a blatant disregard for the law, which for a God-fearing Jew was a giant ordeal. Because to disregard the law was a diss to Yahweh himself. So it wasn't just about the fact that, that he was eating with these sinners. There were ceremonial meanings and implications that went a lot deeper than that. But to eat with a tax collector was unthinkable. A tax collector was hated precisely because he was in partnership with the pagan Romans. And more than that, he was exploiting his countrymen for profit. So think Benedict Arnold, traitor. To eat with a tax collector, a Jewish tax collector, would have been absolutely unthinkable. So we have Jesus doing something brand new, and that is unashamedly eating with notorious sinners. We have notorious sinners doing something absolutely brand new, and that is enjoying the company of a religious teacher. So this is the setting. This is what's bubbling to the surface and why there's conflict. Why would Jesus do such a thing? Why are the irreligious people so drawn to Jesus? Jesus answers his critics by quoting from Hosea 6. And he does this a lot, as we're going to see in this Red Word series. God's priority is costly love rather than careful ritual. As Jesus broke bread, as Jesus had this meal, it was kind of this outward visible sign that something else was being broken. There were priorities that had been set up that were being broken. There were social taboos that were being smashed through by a simple meal. You see, scales had been set up that said falsely that one group of people was worth another group of people. Never meant, never intended in the law, but that's what was being set up. And so performing the outward ritual was greater than, of more importance, given more weight than the people that were made in God's image. When Jesus says, go and learn what this means, and then quotes from Hosea 6, it's really an open rebuke. He's saying this to teachers. Here's what he's in essence saying. You should have known this by now. Go and take a second look at what this means. You're leading people away from the heart of God instead of toward what really matters the most. Here's the principle, if you want to write it down. When you care about appearances and labels more than you care about the needs of people, that equals great sin. If you're more concerned about appearances and about labels than the people made in God's image and the needs that they have, then there's great sin that accompanies that. Do you know that Jesus handed over this whole mission to children? He did. He handed them over to people who were, who were very, very regular people. Peter, probably one of the most prominent and certainly one of the early leaders of the church, was a slow learner. I find huge relief in this. Galatians 2.11, you can just listen, but you can get into this later on in your community group questions. Peter is struggling to carry on Jesus' values even as a prominent leader of the church. And praise God 
there's a Paul that comes along to lovingly confront what's going on. Here's what Galatians 2.11 says. Just listen. But when Peter came to Antioch, I, Paul, had to oppose him to his face for what he did was very wrong. So a great sin is about to be announced. What was it? Here it is. When he first arrived, he ate with Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. So here's the picture. He came, he had no problem dining with Gentile believers who hadn't taken on traditions, right? They weren't circumcised yet. And so Peter ate with them. But then Jewish people came with all of their tradition. And they were believers as well. And this clash happened. And all of a sudden, Peter pulls back. And here's what it goes on to say. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy. And even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So by not breaking bread with some, Peter was breaking God's law of love, to love people. The hypocrisy and partiality that we see in Peter lives on in our churches today. Chances are in most churches, the issue isn't circumcision. But chances are it's something else. Hey, pagans are coming to Jesus. And they're leaving behind their pagan beliefs, but they're bringing in their pagan practices. What do we do? We're good church people. We can't allow this. Again, in our community group questions this week, here's what I want all of our groups wrestling through. We're going to look at Acts 15. We're going to look at some places where it says, just how Jewish did Gentiles have to become? Is that what it means to follow Jesus? Just how, just how much like good church people, whatever that means, do pagans have to do as they come into our churches? Those are the questions that we'll be wrestling with. This is what Jesus stirs up by doing this. Here's a question that's been wrangling through my mind all week. Why do people who are nothing like Jesus like Jesus? Why is it that people who who don't line up with his beliefs and his practices and what he's all about, why do they like him? What is it about Jesus that irreligious people find so attractive? Here's maybe part of the issue. He ate with them. He sat down and had a meal with them. That goes a long way to begin beginning to build a friendship, right? Rather than pulling back and saying, well, I, I can't be seen eating with you. I can't extend uh, any kind of acceptance of you because of X, Y, and Z. I think that's part of it. <clears throat> the question's really for us too, church. What made irreligious people want Jesus to be a dinner guest? Why did they invite him over? Here's the question for us. Are we a church that is attractive to notorious sinners? We, as a church, are really just people. We're a collection of God's people. We're a gathering. An ecclesia is really the word. It's not a building, right? It's people. So as individual Christians, I ask you, as members of NBC who are in, in attendance this morning, I ask you, are you welcome at sinners' homes? Are you being invited over as a dinner guest? I level this at myself as well. It's a penetrating question probably for most of us. 
The statistics of Christians in America is such that within a few years, they have very few non-Christians left. They've stopped building relationships. What did Jesus say? I did not come to call the righteous. I came to call what? The sinner. You know what that means? It means you get your hands dirty. It means it's you walk toward messes. It means that there are irregularities and unfairness that go on in leaps and bounds. Read the Gospels of Jesus. That's what we see over and over and over again. So again, community group's going to be awesome this week. You're going to be wrestling through and wrangling through this and, and looking at some of these things. Religious people don't just get mad at who you break bread with, by the way. Uh, they get mad that you break the fast. That's the second break that we see going on. Look at verse 14. It says this, Then the disciples of John, that's John the Baptist, came up to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, all right, so that's, that sets up the rest of the focus. We're going to look at this little, this little parable that he, that he shares with, with us. But it's centering around this ritual of fasting. Fasting is simply refraining from something. It could be food or it could be electronics. We've seen electronics fast amongst, amongst people and it's for the purpose of mourning and repentance. It's for the purpose of seeking after God. It's for the purpose of expressing neediness. And this idea of fasting comes up while Jesus is eating with unsavory types. Jesus didn't have a problem with fasting. Here's what he did have a problem with. He had a problem with loving the form or the ritual more than the people that God created. He had a problem with religious activity, in this case fasting, obscuring the very work that God was doing right before their very eyes. Jesus was in their midst, and they were obscured from God's work in their midst because they were so dedicated to this specific spiritual discipline. To mourn and pine for God when he's standing right in front of you is what he was getting after. I don't know if you've ever been this person or done this, but the video we just saw speaks to this, and that is this. Religious people often do religious things without knowing why. If you grew up in the church, that's you. You did some things, and you said, I don't know why we do this. Sometimes you ask an adult, they don't know why that you, you do this either. And then they just say, quiet, and just keep doing it, right? But religious people do things without knowing why. We see that in verse 14. These disciples come saying, why do we fast? They're asking a question. It was the same then, it's the same now, it was the same uh, in Fiddler on the Roof. If all you get is rules to follow, you're missing the life and power to keep the rules. Here's Colossians 2.23. It says, These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline. But they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. This church right now is littered with stories who could attest to that and give a hearty amen. They say, man, I tried that route. I tried going after severe bodily discipline. I tried to earn my way to God. I tried the performance route. It doesn't work. It's a jail cell. It's a cul-de-sac. You don't get anywhere with that. Jesus said something totally different. You must be born again. It's not about new rules. It's about new creation. Rather than just more power to say no to evil desires, you know what happens when Jesus invades a life? He gives you brand new desires. 
Don't hear what I'm not saying. It doesn't mean temptation goes away. Temptation will live with you the rest of your life, this side of eternity. But haven't you tasted brand new desires and things you used to try and muster up more and more willpower to say no, no, no to? Jesus comes in as the greater desire, and those wash away because you have greater desires. Outwardly, concern for breaking the fast seems really, really holy. It seems like the work of the advanced lovers of God, does it not? Oh, well, he's breaking the fast. He's doing things this way or that way. And, and, and us common folk go, wow, that person must be really, really in the know. But what's rich about this passage is this. Jesus isn't fooled by the little Halloween mask going on the Pharisee's face. He isn't fooled by, by the, the, the little mask that, that we wear either. People have a long and storied history of dressing up to cover their sin. Uh, think back to the garden when fig leaves were fashionable, right? And then fast forward to the time of the prophet Isaiah. I'm going to just show you some scriptures on, on the screen because I want you to track with me. You can turn there if you'd like. You can jot them down and, and read it for yourself later. But in Isaiah 29, 13, it says this. The Lord said, This people draw near me, or near, draw near with their mouth, and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And the, their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Later on in that same chapter, we hear them asking this same exact question. Why do we fast? Why are we doing this? It's really hard to go without food. Verse 13, or verse uh, 3 of, of, of chapter 58. Why have we fasted and you've not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? You ever ask questions hoping God won't answer? God answers this time. Here it is. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours in this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is this what you think is acceptable? Is this what you think is my heart is all about? All this pious demonstration? I want you to contrast your fast with this. He goes on to say this. Is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Listen to verse 10. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desires of the afflicted, then shall your light arise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. The prophet speaks for God. God sent the prophet Isaiah to tell the people to repent. Repent means Stop! Stop with your wearying religious services while neglecting serving. Knock it off. You're focused on the fringe, outward form while you leave undone the very thing that God wants done. Elsewhere, Jesus speaks to the the hyperactivity and detail-focused religious person. Matthew 23, 23 says this, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees. Hypocrites! 
For you are caref- careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice and mercy and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. What Jesus seems to be saying is fast, yes, but not now. Right now you feast. It's a wedding. The bridegroom is in front of you. Don't do it now. There's coming a time, trust me, when I'll be gone and you should fast, but not now. Fast, yes, but not so that you miss this shiny, brand new story being told right in front of you. It's something akin to people praying and fasting and having their head bowed and praying some more. God, would you please send someone, anyone to help the orphan. God, they're in great, dire need. While the orphan is right in front of them. We just spent a month talking about this. It's performing the religious duty and not and then turning your back on your own flesh, as Isaiah said in the passage. Jesus broke bread, Jesus broke fast, and now we really get to his biggest breaking, and probably the most widely known is that he breaks molds. Jesus came deliberately challenging, outmoded understandings of what the kingdom was all about. Look at verse 16 with me. Um, sorry, let me pick it up from 15. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and the worst tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst. And the wine spills out and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. The wineskin and the cloth represent molds. The idea of a mold is a container that shapes something that's poured into it. Anyone else raised with Tupperware all around them? That was my childhood growing up. Okay, we have a lot of Tupperware babies. You know, just think of like a, a, a Tupperware jello mold that would be going on. I mean, here's the problem that Tupperware solved. You're invited to a dinner party. You need something classy but not too flashy to bring. Voila, Tupperware, right? A Tupperware jello mold. You can pour it right in there. You're a little short on cash. You're a little short on time. You can make a flower. You can make a little building. You can do all kinds of things with Tupperware, right? Tupperware is good stuff. So it's a mold. You pour it in, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to solve your problems. Molds hold fluids together until they solidify. Think jello, right? But they also do that with ideas. We kind of have molds that come together, and they, they kind of coalesce ideas and beliefs until they solidify. And if they solidify wrong, if it's the wrong mold, if it's the wrong belief, the wrong idea, you know what needs to happen? It needs to come and be broken. What does breaking the mold mean? Breaking the mold means something is done in such a different way that it forever alters how we see doing that thing. Think about technology. Certain people in technology have come, and they've just broken the mold on how XYZ is done. Ford did that with building cars, right? And so we, we just have, we have breakthroughs. 
That we, we, we never see that industry again the same way. We never see that idea the same. Why? Because the mold was broken. What Jesus comes and does and why there's such animosity to him is he threatens these molds that are carefully constructed and carefully guarded by the powers that be in his day. New cloth sewn onto the old and worn out. New wine into the old, broken containers. God help us as Christians. Sometimes we are, we are more committed to our, to our traditions, really to our likes, to our own legalisms, than we are to God. You know what's interesting about hypocrisy is, is you understand that every single pastor in America has hypocrites in their church but no one thinks they're hypocrites. It's a really insidious sin, isn't it? Because we're, we're all pastoring churches of hypocrites, and many of us are hypocrites. But no one comes and says, Pastor, I'm struggling with the sin of hypocrisy. No one does. They don't come and do that. It's a sin that sneaks up on you and comes around the back door, and it's all over you, and you don't even know the diagnosis yet. Jesus comes to break the mold and help us out of that. Rather than adding a little bit of Jesus to our religion or to our great pious devotion or to our church attendance, Jesus demands total surrender. Leave everything and follow me. You must be born again. Jesus came to start a movement. And as we all know, movements have a way of kind of getting stuck in the mud, stuck in some kind of a mold and become what? Establishments. Right? No longer on the move. No longer the, the way that God set it up. Instead, it's an establishment. And church history is, is riddled with this. It's a really sad history. It looks an awful lot like what the biblical narrative, narrative is, and that is that we're all sinners. That means that sinners, the under-shepherds of the chief shepherd Jesus, are leading the church. And that means, like Peter, when he was leading the church, they, they get into some bad ruts. So church history is filled with things becoming an establishment instead of a movement. Being God's people was never meant to sit still, to stagnate. But absolutely, by the time Jesus came on the scene, it had done just that. When Jesus arrives, it reminds me of this song by Rich Mullins called Calling Out Your Name, and it says this, The Lord takes by its four corners this old world and shakes us forward and shakes us free to run wild with the hope to run wild with the hope. Jesus coming to break up old molds and bring new wine and new cloth is meant to shake us forward. It's meant to break us through. Commentator D.A. Carson, thinking about this passage, said this, The formal regulations of the old religion must give way to the joy of the new. The patch and the new wine are images of a powerful, evervescent, new relationship with God which bursts out of, a, of the dried-up confines of formal religion. Every church in every generation has to wrestle through this. Are we a movement or are we an establishment? Second, you become an establishment. You're guarding, you're protecting, you're no longer taking risk. you no longer see yourself as being out of control. You see yourself as being in control. So again, as community groups this week, I want us as a church to engage with that question. I'll tell you what this Red Word series is going to do for us. It is going to um, help inform us what is it that we must leave behind 
And what is it that we must pick up and carry forward? I hope we, and I'll put myself at the front of the list, listen really carefully to the preacher on that. I pray that as the storyteller tells his stories, that we wouldn't just let familiarity breed contempt or breed apathy, but that we would lean into the story and say, Jesus, I'm listening. I'm, I'm here. Help me not think I've heard this before. I want to receive something new. Well, lest you think Jesus was an anarchist, he wasn't. He wasn't just going about blowing things up and breaking things without offering an alternative. Instead of being against everything, like some people are, he breaks in order to build something new. Quickly as we close, here's, here's the new things we see Jesus building. Jesus came to build new people. New individuals, yes. We're, we're a brand new creation in Christ. That's why your, your stories are so amazing to hear. I love to hear them over and over. I used to be this guy. God's made me into this person. And, and it has to be God because nothing else could have changed that. Couples that come and say, we used to be that couple right there. And God is forming something brand new. Decades into our marriage. And it's blowing our minds. It's obviously from God. So not just new individuals, but a new people. In Christ, there's no more Jew and Gentile. There's no more male and female. We're all one in Christ. Sin is what takes those lines and kind of separates us out. And we do this today in spades. Sin separates those and God eliminates that. He frees us from that. He says, here's my people. I love looking at your faces every week. I really do. Not because you're so well put together, although you're looking pretty good this morning, i got to say. Here's why. Because as I look around, I just go, there is no way we should be sitting under one roof together apart from Christ. He's building something brand new from all walks of life, from all these different backgrounds. And it's really astounding. You know what I hope? I hope that people do look and wonder, why on earth are those two eating together? That doesn't make any sense. That still happens today. I hope as you break bread as a small group, I hope as you break bread just as friends, hey, you want to grab lunch? I hope people look and go, huh? I hope you bump into people from the office and go, why on earth were you eating with that person? That is not far-fetched. But as a Christian, we ought to be doing that. He also builds new priorities. No longer outmoded forms guarding religion, but instead sacrificially living and loving in the now. I'll tell you some of the things that go on that are just methods. The fact that you're sitting in a chair in worship, that's a, that's a worship method. It can come or go. The fact that we have music uh, with instruments, the fact that we have music that's amplified, the fact that we have electricity and gather uh, in this place on this time, all modes, take it or leave it. As we travel around the world and think about Christians, there are Christian ecclesias, gatherings happening all over in totally different places. And a lot of the stuff we take as the core of our of what we're about is fluff, order of service, music, seating, dress code, programs. Hold loosely to the molds, these cups that we put the gospel in, hold absolutely tightly to the contents of the cup. If water is H2O, don't mess with H2O. You leave that alone. You leave the gospel alone. But you put that in any kind of cup that will get the water to the thirsty people. Finally, he's telling a new story. All religion is about offering advice in some way. 
how to get to God, how to do right. Christianity is totally different from them. Here's Christianity. Christianity fundamentally is just news. It's good news. That's what Christianity is about. Hey, here's how God got to you. Here's how God did right and credited it to you. That's what Christianity is. Religion puts burden on because it's advice, right? When you're told good advice, you might marvel at it at first and go, wow, that was really, really inspiring. What happens the next day? I wish I didn't hear that motivational speaker. Because there's no way I can do that today. It was really inspiring to hear about a prayer and to, to lead my family that way. I want to do that way. But we can turn, we, we can, we can take that walk away and turn that into a, a heaping burden, right? Didn't Jesus come down on people who were heaping religious burdens on people? Do you see why maybe people who were irreligious loved being around Jesus? Because Christianity fundamentally is about news. Hey, let me tell you about the good things that God's done for you. That's it. One places a burden on us, the other lifts them and frees us from the bondage of performance. There's one more breaking of the old that went on, and that is seen at the Last Supper. It's a famous scene, and because of that, I don't want you to gloss over what was going on. Passover is a living picture of the gospel that Jesus came to lead us into. The land was in judgment. God was sending the angel of death to distribute the punishment for sin, and payment was due. God issued a way of salvation. He said this, Slaughter a lamb, take the blood, sprinkle it over the doorposts of your home, and you, people of God, you make sure you're found inside that home. And if you are inside of that home, you escape judgment. The reason it's called the Passover meal is precisely this. The death angel was going to come on the land, issue the penalty for sin, which is death, and it would, here it is, pass over those homes that were covered in the blood. So the blood was the protection. The the, the blood was the umbrella that said at that point you will escape judgment. If you do this, you will be saved. If you do this, you will live. John the Baptist came on the scene. And remember what he said when he saw Jesus? He points over to Jesus and says this, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's one of the first proclamations of Jesus coming on the scene. Is that the forerunner, John the Baptist, made this prophetic utterance. We can look on the other side of history and see all the richness of what that meant. So now at the Last Supper, the last meal, Jesus is at the table and he's fellowshipping with, he's breaking bread with, he's sharing a meal with his crew. This is his intimate 12. And he really breaks through to provide new rich layers to the Passover meal. Jesus is a perplexing person because he was seen as a radical that broke through every tradition and had no regard for the law. But Jesus, in fact, came not to destroy or abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He didn't come and say, uh, Passover meal is null and void. Instead, he came and said, let me show you in rich, full color now all that's going on with the Passover meal. And as he did, 
He shared with them the symbols and what they were about. Unleavened bread. He took his took the bread and he broke it. More breaking, right? He says, This body, this this bread is my body. It's it's broken for you. It's breaking so you don't have to. It's taking the punishment. Take this and eat and become a part of me. This wine is my blood, which is about to be poured out willingly so that you don't have to pour out yours. This is the new blood covering that's going to pay for your sin. Get under the roof of me. Be found in Christ. It's a new story that Jesus ushers in. It's one that can't just be sewn on to the old ways of doing things. As we celebrate communion this morning, um, I just want to point your attention toward this. The reality is that this morning, sitting side by side in the same exact church, the same outward tradition could be going on, the same ritual that Jesus passed on and said, church, you do this. When you gather, you do this and you remember me. Jesus told us to do what we're about to do. We know why we're doing this tradition. But sitting side by side, you could have someone that's doing it and it's totally just boring, dried up religion. I think Jesus would come and want to smash that and break that apart. And sitting right next to the person, it could be a joyous participation, remembrance that I'm found in Christ today. I've, I've received and believed this good news. My life is utterly transformed because of a work that is done. And we'd never know it. And we're not interested in knowing it. I'm not going to go around policing it. It's all internal. It's all in the heart. So here's my request to you. If you don't understand communion and you don't understand what's going on, would you just let the cup and the, and the, and the tray pass? No harm, no foul. I would love to explain it more or someone else can do that. If you feel in your own spirit that you'd be taking it in a way that would just be rote, churchy kind of stuff to do, let it pass. I would invite you to come to the table in the same way that Jesus invites us, to, to, to come and to receive it as a remembrance of him, as a proclamation of his death, recognizing that he's coming again. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for meeting us here. Thank you that you've called us to a shared table, to a a simple little meal together. I pray that as we take this, um, our hearts would be grabbed by you, God, that you would shake us forward, shake us free. If there are dusty things, if there are crusty things in our heart, in our life, Spirit, we invite you, come and blow through and blow that out. Clean it out. We recognize that religion has a way of accumulating junk. And we want you to filter that out this morning. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.